You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Quick apologies at the beginning of this episode. We were not exempt from Snowpocalypse 2021 here in Pennsylvania. And as such, we didn't make it into the studio to record this episode, and we had some technical difficulties. Please forgive us. Have some grace. Enjoy anyway. Before we get started with today's episode, I just want to mention that the second book in our series in the Bible for Normal People, Exodus for Normal People, is out now. So, Pete, why don't you give us a word about it? Yeah, this book is all about trying to get into the really difficult and challenging stuff of the book of Exodus, looking at it through ancient eyes and also through how scholars have dealt with some of these challenging parts. And it's it's, it's a book that I hope you like, and I hope you love it. And it was fun to write it, and I'm really excited about it. So, go now to thebiblefornormalpeople.com, front slash Exodus. You can learn more. You can order the book from there, or you can go online uh, wherever you might order books and find it, Exodus for Normal People. Really excited to have this accessible commentary on the book of Exodus available for you now. Thebiblefornormalpeople.com, front slash Exodus. Well, folks, here we are with another another joint episode here, Jared. What do you think of that? Yep. Another joint episode, me and you. How many has this been? Several oh, thousand? Many. I don't know. Several We've done a thousand. lot of these. Yes, yes, several thousand. Not enough. Done. Not yeah. enough, apparently. There's so many things to talk about. Like, what we're talking about today is questions from the Ask Bible for Normal People thingy on our website, and people drop questions there all the time, and we periodically try to grab some of these and answer them, and really we order them in the answer of the ones we feel we have definitive answers to. The one where we can just sort of say, this is the absolute answer. No. No, th- no that's what we're doing. <laughs> Actually, we're doing the ones that get the highest votes, right? <laughs> P- people take off, really want answers, are fine, whatever. This one's a little unique in that, you know, a lot of times we try to... Th- make them thematically connected, and we talk about certain big-picture themes. But for today, we're just going to jump into some of these questions that have been asked, The you know, as you said, have been kind of thumbs-up the most and voted up the most. And uh, we're just going to, we're going to riff, we're going to talk about them a little bit. And of course, we're not going to come to the definitive answer, as Pete suggested we might, false advertising. I know. But... It's my wish. Let's get get started with the first one. We're actually going to read them. So... The first one is, why pray? Hmm. What does prayer actually do? When I hear others talk about prayer, they often say something like, expect great things when you pray, but the same people warn against testing God. Do we really believe that little Johnny may get better because we pray? Would he not get better if we didn't pray? I have a hard time figuring out prayer theology. Yeah. So, why pray? This is why I have a topic, and I'm only half kidding here, because it's like, you know, I think the way... A lot of us were raised to think about prayer. It's it's a petition to God, and if you do it right, or if God's in the right mood, or if it fits God's perfect will, a great thing is going to happen. And I don't know, I think, Jared, most people's experiences it line up with that way of thinking very easily. And in fact, and then, and then it becomes really a source of, well, like the questioner here, right? It becomes a source of I'm really confused because this is not working out the way I was told it's supposed to work out. Well, and it goes back to, again, our, our understanding of God and where we get that understanding of God and is God in control of things? And, in, you know, in some ways, the idea that if God's in control, prayer would be more effective actually falls flat because if God's in control, then 
God's going to do whatever God's going to do. Right. Um, and so, we've got to kind of figure out this interaction between God and humans, and how much is God influenced by humans? And, and when we get to the Bible, the challenge is we have these different views of God, and in some places, God seems to be quite influenced by what humans are doing, and in other places, yeah. not so much. I mean, in the Bible, I guess a lot of it comes down to how people read the Bible, too, and then, which is where we get how we think about God from. But, you know, in the Bible, you do have people asking God for things and praying fervently, and look at what happens. You know, Paul sprung out of prison. You know, an earthquake and that kind of thing. And But most of us don't really experience that. And I, I don't want to suggest that God can't or never or never does anything, but just it's a common experience that people usually don't turn around from a fatal illness because, they, I mean, prayer doesn't seem to have an effect on things like that. It, it, that's at least our experience because there's no, there's no necessary correlation. So, you know, if, if prayer is not the way we were sort of, many of us were taught to think of it as you say the right things and then God will act in response to that if you have enough faith and if there's no sin in your life, all that kind of stuff. If that's not what it is, so what is it and why do it? And Which is sort of really what the question is. I mean, the, the questioner is as confused as we are about, like, this isn't working, so why, why do we do it? You know, what's the point of this? And I think that is a, that's a different kind of question and a very, very good question to think about. So, what's the answer? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there is an, an answer, because again, where are we going to find the answer? If we go back to the Bible to try to find the answer, we're going to end up with, uh, you know, different perspectives. There is a sense in which petitioning God, you know, affects things in the world, and that, and that God will do things based on our prayers. And so, again, I don't know if I would want to uh, discourage that, but I think I would discourage this kind of karmic view where the more faith you have, the more effective your prayers will be, and the less faith you have or the more sin in your life, the less effective your yeah. prayers will be. I definitely want to reject that. Um, it doesn't seem to be the trajectory of where we're going in the Bible, and it just doesn't seem like a good kind of theology where it's all dependent on us. And then if you pray for something and that horrible thing does wind up happening— and then you say, well, God has a purpose for that. You know, we've had Tom Ward here on, on the podcast who talks very eloquently about how that's really not a good theology. Like, God has a purpose for letting horrible things happen. What, what's up with that? So, I, I, you know, I have struggled with prayers of my life, to be quite honest with everybody out there, for reasons like this. And I'm thinking, you know, whatever. And, and, and what has helped me, and again, this is not an answer, but what has helped me is moving towards a place where prayer is less about what I say and whose presence I'm in. And I've learned that from other people. And it's not so much talking, which, you know, I'm a professor, I like talking. So, it's not so much about talking, but it's about quietness and stillness and sensing God without words, you know. So, I think there's a purpose for that. I think there's a purpose for maybe not doing that, but if if someone in your life is in a lot of pain, just sort of shouting out and saying, you know, this is Lord, this is killing me. Help. 
You know, there's, I mean, I do that, and there's nothing wrong with it, but that's, that's not sort of the cheap God as a butler kind of prayer. If I pray the right, if I pray the right things, things are going to happen. And maybe those circumstances can't be changed or helped, but maybe how I perceive the world and how I perceive the situation can be changed and matured and grown. So, and I've, I know, I've, and am learning that from other people who are really deep in the notion of prayer, like more contemplatively oriented Christians who have sort of made that turn from praying is me asking, and it's sort of me being quiet and seeking contentment with my existence and not trying to change the world or expecting God to drop everything and help me find a parking space at the mall when there's ISIS. You know, I just, I, that always made sense to me, you know, like, just don't, I'll be fine, I'll get a job, but there were, there's a lot of things out there, so go do that. And, um, you know, so I don't know, it's a complicated thing, but I think what happens, people of faith just, it's almost naturally just sort of like talk to God, and I think that's what people do. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't make excuses for it or say it's right or wrong, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, feel like that's your way your time, because that's part of what people in relationships, when they do, they talk to each other and talking with God, and, and sometimes the answers are, you know, a serenity or a sense of peacefulness or, or maybe something else. But to me, that, that it takes the pressure off, and I can at least live with that way of thinking about praying and not the the way that the owner is describing, which is, you know, confusing for me too. Very unsatisfying for me, actually. Yeah, I, I agree. And my, you know, for me, my prayer life has been much more lately, more similar in, in your vein, but also in terms of character traits. And mm-hmm. uh, I find myself asking more for things like discernment and wisdom and grace and patience, like character traits, and and part of that is you know God perhaps granting right. that, but it's also a time for me to reflect on those things in my life, um, and and to take that time to think about am I cultivating those things in my life, and um, so yeah, I've noticed it's much less about asking for things uh, that's almost non-existent, and more about um, how do I how do how do I relate with God in a way that leads me to being more of the kind of person I want to be in the world. Right, and that requires self-reflection, which I think is part of prayer. I think self-reflection is a very important part. I mean, just like for me, for example, if I'm hurting because somebody else is hurting and I want that hurting to stop, Lord, make it stop, I've, I've learned right after that to add, and help not to control it. Right, because I know myself, and I want other people's pain to stop for my own benefit. So I have to let go of that. So a lot of this prayer thing is like, yeah, there's a thing out there that really it makes me sad, it makes me angry, it makes me regretful. But I have to then bring that back on myself because if it's changed in prayer, that's it. It's not the outside world; it's ourselves, and. You know, maybe sometimes for things that this is a horrible thing, let, let me have that job back. Maybe not getting that job back is, is the best thing you can possibly have. And so, you know, we ask for things that are maybe not to our benefit because it allows us to keep living maybe our false self, something that we're not authentic about. And maybe it's it's in going through some of these difficult things that we grow and we mature and we learn. And, and um, 
So, you know, it's actually, it's a really simplistic uh, and, and very unhelpful way of thinking about God is, again, that cosmic butler that's just there to do our bidding if we ask the right way. And I think prayer is, is, is dissatisfying when looked at in that superficial way. It's more complex and interesting and self-involving when we learn, as I am, different ways of approaching the whole idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, we've tackled prayer and given some thoughts. We've solved it in, what, five minutes? We've solved this We're problem. Awesome. I mean, it's out the window. It never to be thought of again, to be honest. But, <laughs> next question. Is marriage mentioned as a covenant in the Bible? Is, is marriage mentioned as a covenant in the Bible? Um, they say, the person says, I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. Yeah. Neither can I. Well, uh, you know, maybe... I bet you some people Yeah, can, maybe though, I can but... set this up, because we were talking about this a little bit before about where this idea comes from. And so, I was reading this article from uh, Tim Keller, who would represent, I think, probably a pretty uh, standard evangelical way of looking at marriage as a covenant. Um, and he says... You know, if we look at it, it, Paul evokes the idea of covenant when quoting Genesis 2.24, uh, which says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, the Genesis text calls what happens cleaving, and this is, uh, archaic, this is an archaic English term that conveys, conveys the strength of the Hebrew verb, which modern translations uh, render united to. So, it's a Hebrew word that literally means to be glued to something. And elsewhere in the Bible, the word cleave means to unite to someone through a covenant, a binding promise, or an oath. So, it's used in this way in other areas uh, of the Bible, and so we're taking it and putting it here Mm -hmm. in Genesis to say that to cleave is to have this binding oath. So, what would you say to that? Well, yeah, I mean, I I get the point uh, of trying to sort of weave together different parts of the Bible to try to make a point, but, you know, one issue is whether you really have such a thing as marriage in Genesis. You know, a man, Genesis 2.24, whatever, is a man shall leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one, and they'll become whole that way. Um, I don't know if that means they're getting married necessarily. It doesn't say that. I mean, if you want to think it's implied because that's a good moral position to take, you'll, you're going to have some trouble in the Bible because there are a lot of bad moral positions that we find in the Old Testament. So, I'm not sure if that's, that's not really implied as far as I'm concerned. It's more, I, th- I think it's more of an explanation for why men and women are attracted to each other and want to physically unite as one. They want to have sex. Of course, this is LGBTQ, that's not an issue here in Genesis. That They're talking about a binary of male and female, right? So, so I'm not convinced that Genesis is talking about that, but I think cleaving, that's fine, but the fact that cleaving, that word in Hebrew, is used in other contexts to talk about covenants doesn't mean a covenant is being referred to back in Genesis. You can't take a, what a word means in one context and transfer that meaning over into another context. And just as you can think about this, just look at the word run in any English dictionary. It takes like two pages, all the different meanings of run. What run means like to run a company does not mean what it means to run a marathon. Run different things in different contexts. That's how language works. It's actually a really fundamental problem to 
illegitimately transfer meanings from one context to another unless you have a really, really good reason. And I think calling marriage a covenant is, in addition to that, maybe spiritizing, Christianizing, so to speak, something like marriage by giving it a name that's really reserved in the Bible for two things, international politics and how God deals with it. That's, that's covenant is used. And I, I just don't see a reason to think of marriage as a covenant. It's, it, it's very serious, you know, it's a great idea, but to baptize it in that sense, um, I think that's privileging something that, that, you know, biblically speaking, we don't really have the right to privilege. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Well, and to take that the next step, you know, it mm-hmm. often is a way to baptize a certain set of values, right? These family values, which usually do exclude LGBTQ and and others. And so, I think it's important to recognize, too, that those who want to defend the marriage covenant as between one man and one woman, like we hear it in that context more and more, have to recognize that biblically marriage is much more uh, complex than that. So, if we're looking at the biblical ways of looking at marriage, not only do we have a, quote, nuclear family, which wouldn't actually have looked even like it today, it does, but we also have polygamy. Um, We have, like, this idea of the Levite uh, marriage. We have the female slave, you know, the concubine. These are often considered to be part of marriage and, and condoned or at least not condemned. And and so, we have to be careful when we're talking about things uh, that mm-hmm. we want to sort of our own values and place them back on the Bible. And I think that's this idea of making sure that marriage is a covenant right. and that it looks a certain way to baptize kind of 21st century American conservative kind of male-female relationships in a certain way. Yeah, we just have to be careful. One thing we do that a lot with our ethics is put those back onto the Bible, and then lo and behold, we find ways to make arguments for it, like maybe Tim Keller does here. Yeah, and calling covenant, like you said, when the only marriage option really involves male and female, calling it a covenant right away gives it sort of like a moldy structure that when you say that people who aren't just male and female get married, you're breaking a covenant. That's like Christian code. That's biblical literalist code for like, God's going to get you. You don't break covenants. You don't do that. That's that's the wrong thing to do. And that's sort of the problem. What you mean by, nobody uses the word covenant today anyway. It's a purely biblically oriented word. We don't use that word in every day. We say contract or agreement or something like that. But if we want to think of it as an agreement between people, then we should just say an agreement between people. But a covenant is already, regardless of what that word might mean in different, like, non-religious settings, in the Christian world, covenant is a powerful that is really saying, this is an ordained thing. And if you mess with it, you're messing with God. As usual, the Bible is 
far more complicated and unruly and sort of untended uh, to be sort of corralled like that and to be used, e- even if for some people the purposes are, are, are hopeful and legitimate, they're trying to say something good. The Bible just doesn't cooperate with us that easily. Okay, so this actually does tie in quite well to the next question because, you know, we're talking about, you know, illegitimate uh, transfer of meaning. You can't take this thing and put it into that context. Um, well, if we look in the Bible, we have all these examples of other kinds of marriage. It, it makes it sound really complicated. And this is a question we actually get quite a bit, which is, how can normal people, everyday people, actually read the Bible and apply it when everything is so seemingly confusing and murky? I love the Bible, but it seems like the only way to be able to read it and really apply it is to be a scholar, an academic, a PhD. Um, how, how, what would you say to that? Well, yeah, I definitely, we do get that a lot, don't we, Jared? That, and it is a good question. And mm-hmm. I think, fortunately, somewhat true that it's hard to understand parts of the Bible apart from some sort of at least you read a lot, you don't have to go to school, but you have to read a lot and think about things. And the reason for that is because when we're living, we're living at a point in time where we have had, for at least, let's say, roughly the last 300 years, an explosion of information about the past, about history, about the passage of time, science, all sorts of things. You know, when we sort of bring the Bible into that whole context and we, we, we read the Bible really as modern people very historically, very much like what happened, that's part of culture, that's part of the modern world that we've been a part of, whether we know it or not, for 300 years. And unfortunately, when you ask questions of history – yeah, there are a lot of moving parts you have to get a handle on. And and so, I totally I, – I, I respect the question and I track with it because in that respect, if you're interested in historical things, which is a complicated study that involves languages and some data that we have and, and putting complex pieces of a puzzle together – that that's that does take some training it it, it does. and you don't have to have it but reading people who do it is probably a helpful thing to do uh, but there's of reading the bible and legitimate ways of reading the bible that are not fixated solely on historical things well and i think that that's what i would add too is yes to be and i think that's an important point to make i just want to reiterate to have a historically accurate understanding of the Bible is to understand the history and methodology of historians, which is an academic process. That it's, it's why we have education. It's why we, you know, have schools. It's so that, yeah, it's not easy. It's, it's a difficult thing. But one thing you said, you know, there's different ways of reading the Bible. I want to keep coming back to, um, this has been, you know, bouncing around in my head since our episode with Emily Towns last season. This idea of reading in community can be really helpful because, not everyone can go to school and other things, but in community, we can discern things together, too. Some people have more information about a particular thing than we do, and I can bring a particular perspective. And we start to then think and talk about our experiences as a community, and what it might mean for us in our community is a legitimate question as a, a community of faith. And and so, we can do that in community, but I do think it it's always in parallel with this historical understanding, not just 
historical in the sense of being experts at the Bible, but also recognizing there's 2,000 years of interpretation yeah. behind all of these texts, too. And so, kind of being part of, we'd say, that, that great cloud of witnesses can help us from just going off the rails, because that's what can happen if I'm just an individual and I'm not trained, and I don't understand context, and I don't understand these things. There is something edifying and important about just being able to have me in my Bible, yeah. but there's also something really dangerous about that. Right, right. And I think, you know, just, just to map onto this, um, things that have come out of, uh, you know, the the podcast we do with James Kugel, which was in season four, um, how the Bible even got st- The Bible got started not because ancient Jews were thinking so much about history, but they were thinking about how that histor- their own historical path can possibly connect to their day and time. And that's when you start getting things like very creative interpretations of these texts, because the point is to apply it, to, 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 um, to bring it home to your, uh, to your time and to your place and to your circumstances. What this question is sort of like lurking behind this question is an assumption that is a very common one. But which is this that the the proper way, the only proper way to apply the Bible is to be certain and clear about what it means historically. Modern scholarship has come around, it's made it very difficult sometimes to come down hard on things about like what happened, why did it happen, what was the original meaning? And then we have, well, what do we do with the Bible now? We can't possibly apply because we don't know what it originally meant. We don't have the history part nailed down. Well, I think, again, the history of interpretation, like you're saying, Jared, that extends all the way back to why the Bible was founded in the, to, to begin with, is the fact that we're not connected to that history, and we have to think creatively on our feet about what it means to commune with God. And the real deep thing that makes that work is the recognition that foundationally what's happening is you're relating to God, not to the Bible. They're not the same thing. The Bible is a means of grace, of communion with God. It's not the thing to get right first in order to commune with God. That's, in a nutshell, the entire history of Jewish and Christian interpretation, in my opinion. History is important. No one ever throws away history, but we don't have access to it. What we have access to is God. <laughs> and God has access to us, and this this text is something we get to wrestle with and think through, right? So, that's something you can do in community, mm-hmm. and you don't need to be up on the latest archaeological investigations, for example. Now, some people do love that stuff. I love that mm-hmm. stuff, right? You love Right. And I do that for a living. I'm interested in history, the academic conversation, but you don't have to live there to engage the Bible and engage God and struggle with it. But some of us are just really interested in historical questions. Well, and it sounds like what you're saying, too, which I would, I would agree with, is we also have to rest away from ourselves the idea that the point is to get it right. Yeah. Like, if the point is to get it right in terms of what the original intention of every single author was, then, you know, don't go to church, go to, go to graduate school and learn how to be a historian. But if the goal is to commune with God and commune with others and become more godly people in the sense of, uh, you know, loving and faithful and, and trustworthy and all these things, and to, and to be a community of faith, then maybe that's, you're bar- we're barking up the wrong tree. And it's not that those are separate, 
but they're not the same endeavor. Yeah. And, and one thing, too, just in, in the sensing maybe the, the move, the questioner here, if I can read between the lines, it's like, what do I have to get a PhD? Do I have to, like, know all this stuff? Well, no. But the thing is, look at it differently. Think of it as fun. Think of it as an opportunity to learn. You know, and and that doesn't mean getting a PhD or going to seminary, but it might be having a really good study Bible and reading the notes and looking at the maps and 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 seeing the kinds of like scholarly insights that are distilled in in, in a good study Bible. It's an opportunity. It's 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 fun to learn. Sometimes you know, I will frustrate. Like, do I have to like know all this stuff? I think behind that is actually a burning desire to want to know some things. But you're intimidated at the thought of like, I can't possibly do all this stuff. Well, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? So you just take it slow and and have fun. Take it as an opportunity. Take it as a tug, where you're invited to a deeper understanding of the Bible uh, around questions that might interest you. And that that's an opportunity. That's that's something that that's a, a wonderful luxury that we have as West, where we look at these things and and you know do our but understand it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think that's a good way of uh, it's a good way of thinking about it. Okay, so it, it actually did spark it, this next question kept coming to mind as we were talking about that because it's somewhat related. It, the question is, who is Jesus? In Indian, Chinese, or other Asian traditions, how is he different from the white Western understanding of Jesus? And the reason I'll make the connection is because, again, when we're, we know, when we're not curious and we're not reading study Bibles and we're not understanding that Jesus was Jewish and understanding the, the Eastern context uh, the, the, that the, the Bible comes out of, we can tend to put our own filter on the Bible. And we can just assume that, you know, the way I grew up and the filters that I use to read the Bible are the way to understand the Bible, that, that it is just the way to do it. So, that's another thing where learning and getting study Bibles, and again, like you said, just taking it one step at a time, can actually not just add to our understanding, but it helps us take those blinders off that maybe we've been looking at this from one particular lens, and there's a lot of lenses through which we can read it, like, uh, you know, Indian, Chinese, Asian traditions, Native American traditions, there's all kinds of, of traditions. So, how would you talk about this, you know, who is Jesus in these other traditions, and how is that different than a white Western understanding of Jesus? Well, I mean, like you said, we all have lenses, right? So, every Jesus is an interpreted Jesus, and uh, I like to show my undergraduate students when we talk about Jesus' birth, showing them portraits of Madonna and Child, and all these from medieval Italy, you know, where they look like noble people, and, and they're very white, and they're dressed like they have a lot of money and stuff. And I tell them, that's not wrong, but it's not the true picture, but this is what happens. People, J- Jesus has brought people's particular cultures and understood within those cultures. Now, I couldn't possibly really comment on Indian or Chinese or Asian traditions. Other people can do that very well. But... I can say that the white Western understanding of Jesus is also a tradition understanding of who Jesus is and not the standard by which others are judged. And that's that's really the problem. The white Western Jesus, well, that's exactly what it is. It's a white Western Jesus. And, you know, if that's what you need, that's fine. Just realize that's not the real thing because none of them are the real thing. Well, that's the scary – I think that's the scary conclusion – and maybe we can talk about that a little bit, and it actually ties into the to the next uh, question. But let's stick to this for now. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's the challenge of it's it's hard for our minds to wrap around the idea that none of them are it. It's always an interpreted Jesus because we aren't in that time and place. And so, any f- way we come to Jesus is going to become through a filter. So, we have to start discerning what filters are better than others, and also just accept the limitations that sometimes we will never not look at Jesus through this particular lens because of our own cultural bias and limitation. And, and God can handle that. And that is simply an expression of our humanity. Humanity are uncultured beings. We can never step outside and look at things from, let's say, a neutral point of view. There's no neutrality for humanity. We are subjective creatures, and we're products of when and where we were raised and how we were raised. And that's the kind of thing – See. Th- why does that have to be a negative, right? Like you're saying, Jared, that's, that's, that is what it means to be human. And if religion out there that can handle humanity being human, I mean, humanity is at least one of them because of the whole incarnation business, whatever that means, however you interpret it, don't worry about it. But God's connection with humanity, actually in both Testaments, is, is one that where, where humanity is it is the context within which God moves. And there's no such thing as humanity in general. There's always, to use a phrase, particularized humanity. Right? Jesus, you know, the Son of God becomes not human, not a man, but a first century Hellenized Jew. That's, that's who Jesus was. And if that's good for Jesus, we have to stand our own locations and our own I was going to say limitations, but that's a little bit too negative. Just we're, we're restricted, I guess. We we see everything, so we're going to see ultimate reality from our perspective, not from a higher perspective that's untainted by our humanity. That's actually bordering on heretical to think we can do that, right? Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So they're all, all the Jesuses are good, and... We might find some of the Jesus from other cultures um, strange, unnerving, maybe even a little bit offensive. And that's the time to turn it around and say, what is it about the Jesus we have that might be offensive to other people? And learn to just, uh, you know, live with that. That's the way it is. And, you know, just one other thing here, Jared, as I'm talking about this, um, even the Gospels have different Jesuses. Yeah, they overlap, but they they have very different takes on who Jesus was and what the significance was, and 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 they had different emphases. Uh, we'd even say maybe agendas for writing the gospel stories. So even the Bible itself, with its four portraits of Jesus, does escape the the real impact of human culture in talking about, let's say, ultimate reality. Okay, so then that does tie in with the with the the last question. I think that we'll have time for today. So I'm going to ask the question, but I'm, I want to tie it in here. It says, "Why you know is Jonathan Edwards? If you don't know who that is, wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Why is Edwards quote Angry God theology not just another turn of the gemstone? 
Um, when do you draw the line of bad interpretation but versus different but valuable? So, you know, you're talking about these different Jesuses, and it sounds like you would be saying all Jesuses are have some value, and they're all valuable, and how we can't judge one from another. They're all about the same. So, kind of that that relativistic rhetoric that my pastor warned me about when I was a kid. You know, how do we discern better versus worse interpretations when we're socially located in our own particular place? How do we make these judgment calls, or or do we? I think we invariably do make the judgment calls, and I think the key word used is discerning. How do we discern? Well, we can begin recognizing that we are discerning, we're trying to discern. And with Jonathan Edwards, you know, he had that famous um, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he was, he, you know, pictures God as sort of like you're you're hanging on a string, I think, something like that over the fires of hell, if I'm, if I'm remembering exactly how he put it. And, you know, he might drop you at any minute. So, you better buck up, you know, kind of thing. And, and now, so I, I know Edward's scholars who say, that's really just rhetorical. He doesn't really mean that. His theology is much more complex, which I'm sure is true. But Edward's angry God theology is one that many, many people espouse. And they actually think that's that's really a good thing. And maybe that's a perspective that we have to take seriously. And I don't want to, to be honest with you. I, 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 you know, I, I don't want to do that because I'm just lazy and trendy, but I, I to think in terms of my own context, I, I, I think in the, the infinite universe that we live in, whether God is fundamentally angry and out to get you, right? That to me makes just no sense. So, that's me, I'm doing this in a very abbreviated fashion, but that's me trying to discern what I think is a valid or unvalid reading of God. And for me, a God who's out to get you, unless you say the right words, to me is not God. And I come to that conclusion for various reasons, and I'm discerning that. So, I would say the angry God theology is not just another perspective for seeing what God is really like. I actually think it's it falls into the category of a distortion of what God is like. That's my opinion. Now, other people may have a different opinion. I have to listen to what they have to say, but I'm discerning, and they're discerning, and we can get, get together and discern differently. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to something maybe we've talked about before on the podcast, which is we have our own ethical lens and ethical framework through which we read the Bible. So, you're going to adjudicate that. You're going to say, I think this is a distortion based on the kind of God that I think makes the most sense in the world, you know, that I, I want to be a loving, compassionate human being. I want God to reflect that, mm-hmm. and I'm going to interpret these, uh, interpret God, interpret the Bible through that lens. And And we all do that. And so, the question really becomes, you know, not do we, quote, follow the Bible, but are we working actively on our filter? Are we looking at power structures and dynamics? Are we looking at compassion and love? Are we looking at our own hurts and wounds from our past? Are we looking at our own traumas? And are we are we constantly, uh, you know, figuring out ways to improve upon that filter? Yeah. And that is a process of discernment and patience where you're not going to get an answer I study all night. Here's what I think. It's it's much, it's much more wonderful than that. And I 
you know, what we're really talking about here, Jared, is discerning what God is like and what we think God is like. That's another way of putting the question. And I have been encouraged, comforted by the fact that biblical writers themselves are doing that and always come up with the same idea. They do have different perspectives on God. And I think of, of you know, my favorite example, what does God think of the nasty Assyrians? Well, in, in Jonah, God wants to save them, but in the book of Nahum, he destroys them. And these are two different discernments of what God is like. And, you know, not to tidy this up too much, but pretty much everybody thinks Jonah is a much later text than Nahum. So, maybe people have been thinking about it for a while, saying, maybe God's not out just to get the enemy. Maybe God is about something else. Now, does that settle the question of the nature of God? No, but seeing the conversation with people, if anything, should encourage us to sort of open up and ask probing questions and and, and be willing to hear different answers. Because, again, talking about ultimate reality when we're talking about God, and we don't capture that very well. So, we want to stay open to the different perspectives, the different turns of the gemstone, as the questioner put it. But it's also okay to say, you know, I, I, for me, that doesn't make sense. That simply doesn't sound like God. That's not science. That is not a mathematical formula where you're certain about it. But for me, I I, I simply cannot, my soul cannot bear that way of thinking about God. I know other people can. It's even in biblical portraits here and there, but it's also not in other biblical portraits here and there. And I'm part of that conversation, too, doing my best to discern and to apply a, a system to this big. Yeah, and I think for me, you know, my final thought on that is, it, from my own experience, it's enough to hang my hat on because for me, the goal isn't to get God right. I don't think I'm ever going to get God right. It's more to have that conversation and to see what kind of life is produced within the struggle, within the doubts, and within the conversation. So, it's okay for me to say, yeah, I don't think that portrait of God, that doesn't jive with me. Right. And I can just hang my hat on. That's enough to kind of move forward. Mm -hmm. I don't need to necessarily, I don't need to be certain about what God is like. I, I need to, I, li- I always like the word palpate. Uh, you know, it's this word that you're sort of pushing down on things. There's something under the surface, but I don't ever know. It's sort of like walking through your house with your lights off. Like, I kind of know where the furniture is. I'm going to bump up against these things and that thing. Um, and I kind of know the lay of the land, but I'm never going to know it perfectly because I can't see everything perfectly. Um, and so, getting comfortable with that level of uncertainty and maybe seeing that the goal is something beyond just getting God right. Again, I'm a little biased on this, but I think that's my framework. That's how I come right, at it. Right, right. And as the questioner asked, where would you draw the line of bad interpretation? I think it's very valid to answer, here's where I would draw the line. Here's why I would draw the line that way. And um, that's okay. It's okay just to leave it there and not feel like... Well, you're missing something that would make you get God completely right. Right. And I just, right. I, I don't really have the energy to get God right at this stage in my life. 
I've been wrong right. so often. So that's how it all. That's how it is. We just, it just, you just keep going to get worn out. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm just tired. How, how I just works. whatever. I'm good. I'm good. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think that's all the time that we have. So thanks again yeah, for joining us for another episode of the Bible for Normal People. Where we'll continue to ask questions about. You know, what is the Bible? What do we do with it? And it really inevitably more and more is leading to the question, what is God like? And how do we discern that together as well? Right. And keep those questions coming. We love seeing them. Absolutely. See you next time. See ya. All right, everyone. That is it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. We also want to give a shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So big thanks to Martin Breithaupt, Stephen Goulstone, Joe Johnson, Laura Scott, Aaron Neff, Matt Porter, Gerald Hart, Casey McLeod, Joel Herring, and Olivia Sun. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be a part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do it without your support. Thanks to our team. Executive producer, Megan Kamick. Audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt. Creative director, Tessa Stoltz. Marketing wizard, Reed Lively. Transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spate. And web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.